Here's a story set in Madison, Maine. Boston, Massachusetts, summer of 1790. Maine was a central hub for ocean traffic into the continental USA, specifically for the Massachusetts Bay colonies. Lobster, fish, and a plethora of other supplies were all brought to Boston and Salem, along with some of the other smaller towns of this area. Ships would navigate the river that is known as the Penobscot, using it to sail inland or ferry supplies outward to the coast. Ships would navigate tight landscapes with steep cliffs and sharp, jagged rocks lurking underneath the oceans like the claws of a sea beast from long ago. Any captain ill-prepared for the treacherous waters the coast might find themselves and their cargo deep under the waves of the salted ocean water. It wasn't long before the United States government recognized that lighthouses would become essential to ocean and river trade through the continental U.S. Less than a decade old and deeply indebted to France, the United States began funneling money into securing these trade routes. It was the United States government that paid for Worrell Madison to move out to a newly built lighthouse with his young wife, Teresa Williams. They had been married less than a month before leaving Boston for the lighthouse. The wedding was pleasant enough, at least in Teresa's opinion, though both families were seething when Teresa refused to take Worrell's last name, electing to instead stay Miss Williams. She made a statement along the lines of women going their own ways and remaining independent. This angered not only the Williams, who were a family of loyalists dedicated to the Church of England, but also the Madisons, a pro-Union family of Catholic descent. This marriage was, as the local Bostonian priest had put it, a bastardization of all things holy, a fate worse than hell for a good Christian boy. Ironically, the priest was Protestant. He had agreed to the marriage only because he thought the Madisons to be Protestant themselves which was brought about by a singular time that Worrell Madison had burst into the church in need of aid for a pet of his, claiming to believe the same things that the priest had, so that the congregation would help him. Though everyone else seemed to have disapproved of the marriage, Teresa was quite satisfied. Not only had she married a man who had spent his former years at sea, not only was she given a house and a job, but she could live with someone who she actually loved. Her idea of romance was warped from the book she had read as a child, but perhaps she was lucky enough to have found her own Prince Charming. Though an idealistic and romantic prince, Worrell was not. He had simply settled for the woman because he knew it would anger his family. He had been a rebellious child, though for good reason. His father was a drunk and far too keen to use the cattle prod in his own sons. So, slipping off to sea at a young age, Worrell became a fisherman. He only stopped by his home on occasion for holidays or special events. He hated his family for their shortcomings. He knew it was wrong that Jesus had called him to love, but he couldn't find it in his heart to care anymore. A wagon carried the Madison supplies, everything they would need to start a life together, all paid for, with Worrell's maritime money he had earned over the years. To say the couple were excited would be an understatement. Both beamed from ear to ear, though not for the same reasons. Worrell because he had finally angered his parents enough to be disowned, and Teresa because she had married a man that she truly loved. They arrived at their new home on a Tuesday. Worrell Lighthouse, 
fall of 1790. A rather short and bald man stood in the doorway of the lighthouse. He wore a rumpled waistcoat and long, dirty breeches. When he first heard the sound of horses from the distance, he reached into his pocket and pulled out a watch. It was far before noon, and he was impressed that the couple had arrived early. Most new lighthouse keepers end up finding themselves lost along the way and far behind schedule. Eagerly awaiting the wagon as it journeyed ever closer, the man began straightening out his appearance, attempting to remove some of the dirt from the bottoms of his breeches. He might as well look presentable and official, after all. He was a representative of the newly formed United States government. Whirl Madison hopped from the wagon and held out a hand for Teresa to take. He lowered her gently from the wooden seat before turning to face the bold man. Hello, Whirl called as he trekked to the front of the house. Hello, the man called back, a wide grin crossing his face as he stepped from the doorway with his hand extended. I'm Brendan Gallagher and I am a representative of the United States government. I'm here to welcome you to your new home and teach you the basics of your new job. The man spoke with a thick Irish accent, which almost immediately garnered Worrell's attention. His family was Catholic, and thus he spent a lot of time before leaving to sea with Irishmen. On occasion, his father would grumble and speak ill of what the Irish had done to the Catholic Church and how they'd ruined a perfectly good religion with their drinking. Some of this anti-Irish sentiment had rubbed off on Worrell while growing up. It wasn't quite hatred, more of an annoyance than anything. But it was enough to fill him with irritation that the man in front of him had to be Irish. Though he decided it was best if he made no mention of the fact. Soon enough, the man would be gone, and Worrell would get his peace away from society. I am Worrell Madison, and this is my wife, Teresa Williams. Pleasure to meet you. Gallagher had closed the distance between himself and Worrell. He shook Worrell's hand with a firm, hearty grip before turning back to the house and releasing his sigh of awe. The lighthouse was newly constructed, only a couple weeks old, and Gallagher fancied the building. He had been a tender of a lighthouse off the coast of New Jersey before the Revolutionary War. When the war struck, he harbored redcoats in his home. He supplied them with food and lodging, both in his spare rooms and in the actual lighthouse tower. It was on a warm, musky afternoon in June that the Patriots laid siege to his tower and burned it to the ground, killing most of the troops inside along with his wife. The bitter irony of working for the newly formed United States government as a lighthouse official was not lost on Gallagher. His journey up until this point had been long and arduous, full of loss and pain. At least he could admire the beauty of the lighthouse. That river is beautiful, Teresa mentioned. I've never seen water so powerful, yet elegant. The Penobscot, ma'am, Gallagher replied. Most dangerous river this side of the Mississippi. Mississippi? Well, that's right, the Mississippi River. Surely you've heard of it. I have not, Teresa admitted. She wasn't one for geography, and this new land was so vast with so many different names, she didn't bother committing them all to memory. The Mississippi River is out in Indian country. It's a natural border between Spain, Quebec, and the reservations. Spans north to south a white stretch. Have you seen it? Asked Teresa, intrigued. I have not. I wouldn't dare go out into Indian country that far. I value my scalp too much. 
Well, safer here, of course. I don't mind headed out past Massachusetts Bay. Are we safe from Indians out here? Out here's the Penobscot tribe, and you're safe enough. Most of them won't come close to settlements unless they're trading furs, though I'd reckon you'd probably see a few from time to time here. I've heard stories they come knocking on people's doors asking for food or shelter during a storm. Still, you might want to keep a pistol around just in case. They fought for the Patriots in the war, but people have been saying that they're getting pretty antsy about all the whites coming into Wabanaki territory. I've also heard some rumors that they're moving to Indian Island. Regardless, just keep your heads about you and your scalps in place. And with that statement, Brendan Gallagher began to show the couple their new home. And after a few hours, he handed them a small leather-bound book and proceeded to demonstrate how to operate the lighthouse. War Lighthouse, Fall of 1795 Five years later, and every evening, Worrell and Teresa would do their duty, losing sleep over managing the lighthouse. They didn't expect it to be so demanding a task, but both were satisfied with the job. If it weren't for the lighthouse, they'd be back with their families, which, in their five years of living in the lighthouse, never visited nor sent letters once. Clearly, they got their wish, to be almost completely and utterly away from civilization. Though this doesn't mean that they had no guests. Brendan Gallagher would stop by once a year to check on the operations of the lighthouse, though he never stayed more than a few hours into the evening. On occasion, Worrell or Teresa would have to go downstream to fetch the doctor for a house call. One such occasion, in the fall of 1795, saw Teresa seriously ill. She'd wake up and get sick in the morning, running outside to the edge of the river and hurling. She started becoming ornery, and Worrell found himself annoyed. Despite living with her for five years, he didn't fall in love like he had hoped. He considered her a close friend, but he was never truly romantically involved with her. This didn't stop him from pretending, though, by grabbing a book when he visited town for her or telling her stories of some distant future in which he had provided everything her heart could desire. She heard these stories, saw his actions, and fell even deeper in love with him. She couldn't imagine a life without him, and frankly, didn't even want to think of it. When she grew ill on those mornings on the cusp of fall, he traveled to town and was back within a few days with the doctor. The doctor looked her up and down and began to ask questions. What is it that's been wrong? I've been getting sick a lot, doc. Any specific time of day? Yes, generally in the mornings and sometimes the evenings. Any other issues? My feet are swelling a bit, and I felt my mood shifting. I see, said the doctor. He turned and sat down at a wooden chair, a smile crossing his face. Congratulations. Congratulations, asked Worrell as he eyed the doctor. His arm was around Teresa in a rare display of affection. That's right, Mr. and Mrs. Madison. You're going to have a child. Worrell tensed up. A child? But how? Sure, there were evenings in which he was more passionate than usual, but never so passionate as to warrant a pregnancy. Teresa's eyes bulged when she heard the news, a mixture of shame and surprise built from deep within her soul. She felt her stomach churning. No, there must be some mistake. 
How can I be pregnant? I, I've not done anything wrong. It's not about doing anything wrong, Mrs. Madison. It's about doing things right. God has blessed you with a child, and you must accept his gift. I don't want it. I don't want a child. She felt bile at the back of her throat and quickly ran out of the room towards the edge of the cliff. Both men looked at each other in awe. Oral wasn't excited to have a kid, but at least he did a better job hiding his emotions. It's Miss Williams, not Madison. Are you two not married? We are. After a minute or two of awkward eye contact, Worrell turned to check on his wife. She was on her knees and peering over the cliff. Tears streamed from her eyes as the cold August wind matted her hair. Her hands were clenched in prayer, and she whispered to God, asking him to take away the pregnancy to stop it from happening. Worrell called out to her and asked her to come back to the lighthouse, to step away from the ledge. Teresa, my love, my sweet, please come back to the house and talk with me. You don't have to do this. Do what? She wondered as she prayed. Did he think she was going to jump? Sure, she was truly ashamed, but life was too wonderful to end it. No, for once in her semi-spiritual life, she prayed to God that there would be no evidence that the baby she carried wasn't Worrell's. Did he know? Is that why he wanted to talk? She'd been faithful for so long, but it was on one of his long trips to town that a man stopped by the cabin. She was smitten from the moment she saw him, and one thing led to another. Of course, she regretted letting her inhibitions take a hold of her. She was unfaithful to her husband, who had been nothing but a perfect provider for her. Little did she know that Worrell had a terrible secret of his own that he prayed she'd never noticed about him. Worrell Lighthouse, June 20th, 1796. There came a knock on the door of the lighthouse. Teresa had already been up for a few hours. She awoke in a cold sweat, and something deep within her soul, possibly God, told her that today was the day. After nine months of carrying this child, she was quite ready to begin the next step in the process of motherhood. So, it was no surprise that the sleep-deprived woman with swollen feet was the first to answer the door. Since she had trouble resting, she generally tended to the lighthouse in the evenings while Worrell tended during the day. Teresa opened the door to reveal a man dressed in traditional Penobscot garb and holding a canteen which once bore water. He bowed his head in respect, then lifted his canteen and unstuck the lid. Water. His voice was low and raspy. He was pale, and his hand trembled as he held the canteen. Then his grip loosened and the canteen fell to the floor. His eyes began to glaze over, and they stared off into a distant place. Worrell! Teresa yelled as the man collapsed to the ground and shattered his canteen beneath his weight. Worrell! She cried again. She fell to her knees and tried to help the man. She lifted his head into her lap. Cuts bore deep into his flesh, and blood poured from the wounds. Worrell! Worrell! She heard footsteps from the other room, and soon the door swung open. Worrell, dressed in cotton pajamas, sleepily rubbed his eyes. With a low groan, he began complaining. The baby better be coming because I am far too tired to deal with whatever. His hands lowered from his eyes, and he stopped talking. 
For a moment, he stood there, slightly bewildered at seeing a man, a native one at that, bleeding out on his doorstep before breakfast. Muttering a gentle curse under his breath, he rushed to his wife's side. What happened? He asked as he tore the fabric of his arm sleeve and began making a bandage. He asked for water and collapsed, Teresa exclaimed. Fear and panic boiled up from deep within. Do you think a bear did this? I've never seen gashes like that. A bear? The bandage was applied, but blood quickly began to stain the cotton. It wouldn't last long. I guess so. Where do you think he's from? Indian Island? Do you think he's with the Penobscot? Blood shot from the man's mouth as he began violently coughing. Teresa screamed as a full splatter covered her face red. Worrell hastily stood and ran out towards the kitchen. A moment later, he reappeared with a bottle of whiskey. He uncorked it and proceeded to pour it onto the man's wounds. The man screamed in agony, but the pain was too much for him. He fell unconscious in Teresa's lap. Teresa, wide-eyed, looked to her husband. Is he dead? No. You see that? His chest is still rising. He's breathing. He's just unconscious. Pain did him in pretty good. What do we do? Clean and dress his wounds? Leave him outside? Let him stay in the spare room? Oh, what if he comes to and is violent? I don't want to get scalped. Teresa was panicking. Multiple different scenarios flashed through her head, and all of them seemed equally as bad. We'll treat him like anyone else. If God brings us a dying man, it doesn't matter the color of his skin or if he collects scalps. We've got to do our duty as Christians. It was unlike Worrell to take the moral high ground and use faith as a reason to do anything. But the oddness behind his sudden talk of God was enough to take Teresa's mind from the horde of scenarios in which she and her unborn child ended up dead. Worrell ran further into the lighthouse and grabbed spare cloths and sheets. He pieced the cloths together to make bandage wraps, which he then used on the man's wounds. He laid out the sheets on a small bed in the room they had been preparing for their unborn child. When his work was done, he took to a rocking chair in the back corner of the room. Whiskey in hand, he began to drink. Worrell wasn't fully asleep by the time he heard his wife knocking at the door and calling his name. She sounded panicked, so, dutifully, the husband stood from his chair and glanced at the man. He was unconscious still, but it looked as if the bleeding had stopped. Deciding that he could leave the man's bedside, Worrell opened the door for his wife. She was pressed up against a wall and breathing heavily. It's time, she exclaimed. Worrell felt the panic in his heart. He ran to his wife's side and helped her into the other room. Teresa laid onto the bed and began propping pillows. The man screamed from the other room, and Worrell looked to his wife, who nodded. Worrell attended to the two until late into the evening. The sun had gone down, and less than an hour after, he heard the cries of his first baby boy. He fell asleep. The house was quiet as all four people rested from the day. This is the story of William Henry, a captain who, with nearly 30 years of experience, was used to delivering cargo up and down the Penobscot, along with the coast of the Massachusetts Bay colonies. It is a short story, and one full of tragedy, but sometimes it's the tragedy of others that makes the story worth hearing. If it weren't for the tragedy that befell Captain Henry, then Madison, Maine would be nowhere as unique as it is now. 
Captain William Henry was not a distinct man. He was average height, with a bald head and soft green eyes. His face wore a beard, and he generally found himself reading from the Bible or working on his ship. He once convinced a priest to work on his crew during the day and preach the gospel during dinner. William Henry was a devout man, a fair captain, and always on time. He was well known for his godly treatment of his crew, paying fair wages, and even being known to dine with his men every evening instead of inside of his captain's cabin. When his quartermaster's daughter grew deathly ill, William Henry not only stopped along the coast and delayed his cargo, but also personally paid for the doctor's visit along with the medicine for the girl. Yet, somehow, despite the delay, the captain and his crew not only arrived on time, but with nearly a day to spare. Now, the captain was contemplating whether to give his men bonuses for the hard work they'd done or invest in one of those new steam-powered boats that they used roughly a decade before to move up and down the Delaware. The night of June 20th, 1796, would end those thoughts. Most of the captain's crew had gone to bed so that they could be up early in the morning to handle the ship. Awake and chatting with his navigator, Captain William Henry did not notice that the Madison's lighthouse was not lit nor did he realize how close he was to leaving the Penobscot River and charting into the Atlantic. He was exactly on schedule and exactly where he needed to be, but unfortunately, the Madisons were not. His ship slammed full force into the treacherous rocks and cliffside of the peninsula. The captain flew from the deck of the ship and was impaled on the rocks below, dying nearly instantly. His last thoughts were of his crew and their families. Nobody survived that night. Most of the men drowned, and the others who attempted to escape the ship were caught on the rocks below, like Scylla and Charybdis tearing a ship in two. There was no one left alive of Captain William Henry's crew, nor were there any bits of the ship intact. By the time Worrell awoke from his alcohol-induced sleep, the crew had been dead for nearly eight hours, and the baby had been crying for at least one. <laughs> 